It's Wednesday, March 23rd, 2022. Teenage girls in the Afghan capital of Kabul walk to their classroom in the spring sunshine. The mood is a mixture of relief and excitement. Secondary schools will open their doors to them. Desks are arranged into neat rows. The young girls, wearing headscarves and COVID-19 masks, sit patiently for lessons to begin. Suddenly, their teacher gets a WhatsApp message. The Taliban have ordered a last-minute policy reversal, she says. Secondary schools for girls will remain shut until further notice. Classmates share looks of confusion that turn into despair and frustration. An all-too-familiar history is repeating itself. The Islamist group, once again in power after the fall of Kabul in August 2021, are denying women the right to learn. Just one hour after their arrival, the girls head home in tears. The future voices of Afghanistan left heartbroken and silenced. My name is Rosie McCabe. Welcome to the new Arab Voice. The future of women in Afghanistan will be just like future of 14 years ago, just the future of our mothers. This is Ada, a female Afghan student and activist who lives in Kabul. For safety reasons, we have not used her real name. Who were to get married in 8 years old or in 12 years old and give birth and they should, they will not have the right to even speak up. The Taliban first seized power in 1996, taking advantage of the instability and gaping power vacuums in the post-Soviet era. The fundamentalist group ruled with an iron fist until 2001, conducting systematic violations against women and girls which included banning them from all forms of education. When the Taliban were eventually overthrown following the US-led invasion, they controlled some 90% of the country. Skip forward 20 years, and Western allies, led by the US, decided it was time to withdraw troops from the country. Then President Trump signed a deal with the Taliban and effectively handed the country back to the hardline group. The looming question after Kabul fell on August 15, 2021, was whether a Taliban 2.0 had taken charge or whether the group would revert back to its brutal rule. Growing evidence from Afghans in the country, unfortunately, points to the latter. I work in Afghanistan National Women's Network. I think two Talibs took my three pictures and my ID and they said they wanted to take my phone also. But I really shouted and cried that I'm not someone who should be treating for you. I will not do anything anymore. I promised them that I will not continue my work. So they just give my phone, but they didn't give my ID and they took my pictures. After that, I just stopped working in the ground. We just stayed at home. Multiple Afghan women shared stories with the new Arab voice of targeted violence against them at the hands of the Taliban. They spoke about a climate of fear and discrimination. They all urged the world not to forget them. It's absolutely devastating. This is Heather Barr, the Associate Women's Rights Director at Human Rights Watch. Barr has spent years living in Afghanistan and is currently documenting Taliban abuses against Afghan women. It's devastating to 
you know, every single one of these girls, it's devastating to, you know, the families of every single one of these girls. It's devastating to the country's sort of social and economic future. You know, it's a huge self-inflicted wound. Painting a picture of the present situation in Afghanistan, Barr explained that power structures and access to education are increasingly fragmented. You know, when the Taliban were in power from 1996 to 2001, they seemed to have run things in a relatively centralised way. But over recent years, prior to August 15th, as they gained control of more and more parts of the country, you know, they there was a lot of variation on a local level and a provincial level in, in how they administered different parts of the country that were under their control. So you saw quite a bit of variety on issues like girls' education. You know, in some places, schools were entirely closed. In others, they were open all the way through high school. Human Rights Watch documented the gradual reopening of girls' secondary schools in six to nine of Afghanistan's 34 provinces from August 2021 to March 2022. In the northern Afghan province of Bakh, girls' secondary schools never closed. However, at present, the vast majority of girls' secondary schools across the country are shut. And, for those who can enter the classroom, either at primary school or university level, learning is increasingly difficult. After the exchange of the regime, about one month with two weeks that we were, uh, we were not able to go to university. But uh, thankfully that our university get started and we are right now girls are going one day girls are going to university and another day boys are going to university. Ada said that girls at her university can't be taught by young male teachers and can't go to a male teacher to get some help. She also mentioned the growing demotivation among female students. The Taliban have barred women from most paid jobs and are trying to push them out of public life, imposing strict controls on their movement. I'm really worried about this. Not only me, my classmates, my teachers, they are all worried about us. They say that after this exchange, women become limited to only homes. So they are telling us to work hard on your master's degree to take a scholarship. After that, uh, do something to work in a place where is, you, you have right. And Afghanistan, if this regime continue like this, they will lose their motivation to study. If we graduate, we, will, uh, we couldn't find job. So, why has the Taliban excluded around half the population from education and equal opportunities? A decision that will prove detrimental to the economic and mental health of the nation. And why did the U-turn so abruptly on March 23rd, from planning to open girls' secondary schools to demanding they stay shut? Their argument and narrative has been that they need to make a decision on the proper outfit and clothing and hijab for female students. This is Dr. Wider Moran, an Afghan lecturer at the University of Exeter with expertise in conflict prevention and peace in Afghanistan. In May the Taliban announced that Afghan women must wear the distinctive head-to-toe blue burqa when in public, and furthermore, must be accompanied by a male chaperone, reimposing rules that were enforced during the regime's first period of rule. In the country, they just uh, sent a directive that all women should wear that burqa, traditional burqa that some women in some village used to wear in some historical period and if they don't wear it or if they're not 
if they don't wear proper hijab, they will be facing punishment. Moran said that it's not really about the clothes and women's backs, or the right to learn. Female freedoms have become part of a wider game for the Taliban to leverage international recognition, so they can appear progressive to cloak their true intentions. From where I stand and from based on my analysis, the real reason is that they have been using uh, women's education and women's rights as a bargaining chip to gain international recognition. They have been playing this game that they will allow women to return to their jobs and girls to go back to school if the Taliban's government is recognised by the international community. No country has formally recognised the Taliban government yet. Nations such as the US and the UK have called on them to respect women's rights, indicating that this is a precondition before recognition is considered. Other countries such as China have expressed less concern about human rights publicly. But behind closed doors, according to Barr from Human Rights Watch, China, like Russia, is appalled by the Taliban's behaviour and doesn't want to be associated with defending it. However, Economic opportunities for trade and resources have proved enough for the likes of Beijing to work with the Islamist group. Just one month after the group took power, a delegation from Kabul visited the Chinese capital. In March of this year, Chinese officials held talks in Afghanistan with senior Taliban officials to discuss economic cooperation and security. Taliban new turns on opening girls' secondary schools, therefore, appears both counterproductive as well as cruel. Miran again. And there is another line of argument and discussion that the Taliban is not a unified group and that there are elements within Taliban, fractions of Taliban that actually are against girls' education. There are hardliners within the Taliban, so on and so forth. And that's true. And that actually holds up to a certain degree. Following this logic, it was hardliners in the Taliban, unable to stomach the thought of young girls learning, who were behind the sudden change of policy. This diversity of opinion among Taliban ranks would also explain variations in access to learning among provinces and between primary, secondary and university institutions. However, I believe that the Taliban is still could have allowed girls to go to school despite all of these hardliners within the Taliban who are against women's education. And my reasoning is that so far, what we have seen um, from, from inside Afghanistan, from the Taliban's policy, some universities, especially state universities, are open. And women can go to women can go to universities. If hardliners within Taliban were against that, then how come that the Taliban could come along with that decision? How come those hardliners are okay with that decision? So, the Taliban's attempts to block access to education is less of a uniform strategy and more of an inconsistent policy. Back to Bar. My personal view is that I don't think any of this feels very strategic um, on their part. I think it, it, which, you know, which is unfortunate in a way, if it was strategic, it would be easier in a way to figure out how to respond. While this makes the situation complex, Barr said, it doesn't mean solutions are impossible. I think, you know, it's, it's tricky, but it's not impossible. And the reason it's not impossible is because there are things that the Taliban want from the international community. You know, and you might think that their top priorities would be about, you know, the humanitarian crisis, the economic situation. Things at the top of their list seem to be about 
their own status and how they're perceived, whether they're recognized as a legitimate government, whether they, you know, have access to things like Afghanistan's seat at the United Nations, about the sanctions that they're currently under. Human Rights Watch are pushing for an emergency meeting to strategize how the world should engage with the Taliban that prioritizes female education. So we're we're sort of crystallizing a bit in terms of our strategy and 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 wanting to really call on six specific countries to take the lead on on crafting a strategy on what should happen now. Those six countries are Canada, France, Germany, Mexico, Norway, and Sweden. And the reason that we are singling out those countries is that those are the six countries on this planet which have said that they have a feminist policy. This is the moment where we find out what having a feminist foreign policy means. Studies by the Asia Foundation show that the vast majority of Afghans support female education. Barr explained that a strategy that harnessed existing appetite for learning, with a bespoke model of education funding for each community, based on its needs and cooperation, could help ensure girls stay in the classrooms. If people also had a financial stake in um, in the secondary schools being open, if, for example, a woman who's in Badgis province, like, says, you know, look, my cousin in Balkh, who's a teacher, is getting paid because her school is open. Her second, her the girls' secondary school that she teaches at is open, but you know we've got no food because the school that I teach at is closed. You know, like suddenly, suddenly you have a, another set of incentives for communities to be um, making that demand of the Taliban to reopen those schools. However, the implementation of a decentralized model will be challenging and has already faced resistance. We were speaking yesterday with someone, a senior official who works on Afghanistan, who was saying to us that this idea of funding specific provinces and not others, that the UN has said that, that that's not feasible. You know, it's too, it's too difficult to kind of divide things up that way. And, and I, I think that's nonsense. And I think they have to be pushed to reconsider that. It might be, might be a pain, but it's not impossible. And I, I think it's really important and relevant in this context. When I asked Afghan academic Miran about what was needed to protect girls' education in Afghanistan, she said out-of-the-box thinking was required. She was also adamant about one thing. Um, I believe that they should engage diplomatically with the Taliban uh, because right now they are in power. That's the reality that we are facing. Uh, they should uh, they should be diplomatically engaged with the Taliban and freezing the assets and allowing more funding to uh, go and be channeled to go through formal institutions in Afghanistan without rigorous diplomatic engagement with the Taliban and holding the Taliban accountable will not be effective. What's the difference between diplomatic engagement and formal recognition of the Taliban? Mirren said... Quote, the lines are blurry. There should be engagement, but engagement does not necessarily mean recognizing the Taliban's government. I think what can be done in Afghanistan right now, by the international community in general, be it like diplomatic missions, the UN has a mandate to work in Afghanistan, and many other human rights groups uh, and uh, NGOs 
and so on humanitarian aid organizations who can work in Afghanistan. But they need to also think about how to deliver that kind of aid and services without enriching the Taliban and without empowering the Taliban. This will be a difficult task, to say the least. However, the cost of inaction for the women of Afghanistan is catastrophic. The UN must bring pressure to Taliban. I think we have to not forget women and girls who are still in Afghanistan. If those who are out of Afghanistan right now, and when I I get out of Afghanistan, it's my job, it's my responsibility to raise my wife for women and girls. Final words to Miran. At the individual level, this impact also goes beyond one year, two years, or a decade of experiencing such oppression. It is not, the impact is not going to end when the Taliban opens up its schools. And I can say that from personal experiences as well. Having gone through that experience of the Taliban closing down the schools, I still remember those days. I still remember them very vividly, no matter how hard someone like me, who is not even in that situation anymore, I'm not living in Afghanistan anymore. Millions of women who experienced that have not forgotten it. And it is, it is something that will stay with you. The New Era Voice was produced and written by me, Rosie McCabe, with help from Hugo Goodridge. Our theme music was by Omar L. Phil. The New Era Voice will be back next week. Until then, you can find all the previous episodes on all major podcast platforms. You can also check out our Instagram page and Twitter account, both at The New Era Voice, for additional content. You can subscribe to the podcast so you never miss an episode, and you can also rate and review, which helps us spread the word. Don't forget to follow The New Arab on Facebook, Twitter and Instagram for all the latest news from the region.